information that you receive on Exclusively Inclusive Podcast is designed to be a learning experience for patients and listeners in order to supplement their own information so they can be better equipped to be advocates in their own healthcare journey. The opinions expressed by Erin Everett are the opinions of her own and do not represent any third parties or separate entities. In addition, the specialists that present on the show are also here to supplement your own healthcare information and are not designed to replace any treatment plans or information you're receiving from your own healthcare specialists. We hope that you enjoy the show and continue to subscribe and listen in. There are certain things you can do, and, and this all goes hand in hand with explaining to them at the start what we're doing and why we're doing it, and then coming up with what's going to make them most comfortable. If they would prefer an exam in the frog bug position, if they would prefer an exam that was just a digital exam without a speculum, um, if they would prefer just a half a speculum exam, we will do what we can to make them feel comfortable, but also be thorough and, and you know, do our appropriate screening and evaluation. Welcome to Exclusively Inclusive, your source for the latest in LGBTQIA healthcare, transgender HRT, and personal empowerment. Here's your host, Aaron Everett. Welcome back, everybody, to Exclusively Inclusive. I'm your host, Erin Everett, nurse practitioner. On today's show, I'm very excited to have a special guest with us, Dr. Sally Huber. Dr. Sally Huber is a urogynecologist at Advanced Gynecology here in Atlanta. Her location is specifically in Buckhead. Dr. Huber completed her undergraduate degree at Columbia University and medical degree at New York Medical College. Sally then went on to complete her residency in gynecology and obstetrics at Emory University. She's also an Atlanta, Georgia native. After her residency, Sally went to complete her fellowship in female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery at Will Cornell Medical College. It was during that time that she received a certification in clinical epidemiology through Joan and Sanford I. Wheel Graduate School of Medical Sciences. The LGBTQIA population is of significant importance to Dr. Huber, and during her fellowship, she was awarded the NIH-funded grant for her research in pelvic floor conditions in transgender women. Dr. Huber headed a nationwide collaborative to generate long-term applications that improve the quality of care for transgender women after surgery. Sally is a staunch advocate for the community, and we're so happy to have her on the show with us today. All right, Sally. So thanks for coming in and chatting with us today. So um, tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe like a fun fact that most people wouldn't know about you. Hey, Erin. Thank you so much for inviting me on here. I'm really excited to chat with you a little bit about what I can do to help the LGBTQ population and specifically our trans patients. A little bit about me. Um, I am a urogynecologist. So I was trained in obstetrics and gynecology, and then I did a three-year fellowship focusing on female pelvic floor health, especially bladder health, um, sexual health, and dealing thing with things like pelvic pain, um, pelvic floor dysfunction. Um, I am from Atlanta, but I was away for several years, and I just moved back down here to be closer to family. My wife and I have an adorable 10-month-old Aww. who is totally running the house right now. Of course. Um, so, um, <laughs> of course. <laughs> so, so it's just nice to be home, be close to family, and um, start building a, a practice here. Awesome. Well, we're excited to have you back. It's rare that you come across an Atlanta native. I know. Everyone's a Mostly transplant. Mostly transplants yeah. here. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. 
We're excited to have you back. So you're currently working at Advanced Gynecology, and um, when, mm-hmm. when did you move back? I've been here for about six months now, okay. um, and we have a few practices. I'm currently in the practice in uh, Buckhead on Peachtree Street. Awesome. Um, near Piedmont Hospital. Yeah, that's super accessible to a lot of outpatients, too. Just to kind of get started here, what are some of the ways that your office have created like a safe space for patients and particularly like trans men? So I find that it's a lot of the little things that you can do just to kind of introduce the idea to patients that you're open and that you're not going to discriminate, you're not going to judge, um, that this is a safe space from, you know, just when they walk in the door having a sign right next to the check-in saying that we're an open office that does not discriminate. Um, We accept all gender identities, all sexual orientations, all races. To on our patient intake forms, asking what their preferred pronoun is, you know, asking what what names they would like to be referred to as if it's not consistent with what's on their driver's license or what's in their medical record. Mm -hmm. And then when when we bring them back to the room, you know, first thing we tell them is this is a safe place. Everything that we talk about is confidential. Um, if anything makes you uncomfortable, please let us know. And just you know, reinforcing little things like that. And then when I come in um, and I do my exam, I explain everything I'm going to be doing with the exam, why I'm doing all of it, and that to once again reinforce, you know, if something's making you uncomfortable, please tell me, and we don't have to do it. You know, everything is your decision here. So just letting them know that they do have autonomy and that they do have a voice in what we can do for them. So. That's awesome. Um, that's what we try and do here. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of backstepping to what you mentioned about comfortable exams and explaining everything. Obviously, you know, a lot of patients in general are really dislike a speculum exam. You know, in general, it's not the best, you know, fun experience. But particularly for those who may have mm-hmm. undergone like sexual trauma or have other concerns who are trans men who might have a lot of pain in that area. What are some of the ways that you can accommodate that? Are you able to do an exam without speculums? Are you able to skip the stirrups? Anything like that to help them feel better? There are certain things you can do, and and this all goes hand-in-hand with explaining to them at the start Mm -hmm. uh, what we're doing and why we're doing it, and then coming up with what's going to make them most comfortable. If they prefer an exam in the frog leg position, if they um, would prefer an exam that was just a digital exam without a speculum, um, if they would prefer just a half a speculum exam, we will do what we can to make them feel comfortable, but also be thorough and, and you know, do our appropriate screening and evaluation. You know, we also do have um, a surgery center available if we are concerned that there is some significant pathology that we need to look very closely at. We can always take them to the surgery center, put them under a lighter anesthesia, once again, with their consent, so that we can take a close look and and. You know, we don't have the uncomfortable aspect of being awake in an office to do that. Awesome. I will also do, you know, for trans men, you know, even though they have been taking testosterone and even though they may be at lower risk for having HPV or mm-hmm. cervical cancer, cervical dysplasia, they're still, you know, they still need to be screened. And so we can try and accommodate like a blind pat swab if needed, you know, once again, as long as the sample is okay, if the pastor comes backwards and conclusive, then we'll need to have another discussion. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we, we reinforce the fact that, you know, as long as they have female genital organs, mm-hmm. um, you know, for their health, we need to continue screening them and whatever way we can accommodate them, you know, we will work with. 
Oh, that's awesome. And I had no idea that it was even an option to go to a surgical center and do that. I'm sure it's not the common scenario, but even the fact that it's an option is probably very reassuring for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's always our option that you know, if we need to do something like that, we have the ability to do that. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, and then the, the other thing I want to say with that, too, is mm-hmm. um, with trans men, um, but, you know, any patient that comes through our office, you know, from the LGBTQIA uh, population, you know, a lot of them, like you said, are victims of sexual trauma or domestic violence. And so the biggest thing is communication. And, you know, I tell patients every step of the exam that I'm doing as I'm doing it so that they aren't surprised. Um, and I also go slowly so that nothing catches them off guard. Um, right. And I find that, you know, when, when patients are caught off guard or when they're uneasy with something, their pelvic floor contracts, which makes our exam much harder. Mm-hmm. But if you're able to calmly discuss it with them as you're doing it, the pelvic floor tends to relax and you're able to access the organs a lot easier. So um, I would encourage you know, any providers listening to this to always make sure that you're doing that during your exam because it really will make everyone's lives a lot easier. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is a very valid point. You never want to surprise anybody who's already anxious about the exam. And so another thing kind of on this subject, do you find that when we're talking about trans men in general, and I know this is kind of a little bit off topic, but are IUDs, are they like a feasible option? Do you find it more challenging to insert those into trans men? I have a lot of conversations with my patients about, um, you know, whether they're having persistent menses, even while they're therapeutic on their T, or if they want to utilize it for uh, contraceptive use. Do you think that the exam mm-hmm. is more challenging? And if not, or if so, is there like a timeline on how long they're on testosterone to where you would or would not see it as a feasible option? So I found that it's really patient dependent. You know, we're talking about trans men kind of in a bucket as far as being on testosterone for and, and, you know, a various lengths of time, mm-hmm. you know, obviously trans men that have just recently started testosterone are going to be very different than trans men that have been on testosterone for many, many years. Right. But that being and this, said, and that has to do uh, with the lack of estrogen, right. And the atrophy in the tissues and things right. like that. Yes. Okay. Just wanted to clarify that. For right. Exactly. Too. Yeah. 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 Um, so, so essentially when, Trans men are on testosterone for an extended length of time. It puts them into something like a menopausal picture in mm-hmm. cisgender women, where the you know, vagina becomes narrowed, it becomes smaller, it becomes mm-hmm. less compliant. Um, the tissue is just thinner and more easily irritated as well. Mm-hmm. And then along those lines, too, once they've been on testosterone for a while, the cervix changes. And it's, so as far as putting in an IUD, sometimes that makes it a little harder to place the IUD through the cervix because the cervix doesn't have that estrogen feeding it anymore to keep it open mm-hmm. and patent. So back to the question, though, what if I have a, uh, um, a trans man who's coming in asking for an IUD, the first thing I'm going to do is an exam and just see you know, one, what their comfort level is like, two, am I going to be, is it going to be easy for me to place it in the office? And then kind of base that conversation off of that exam. Mm -hmm. You know, the other options that's available to them are um, like a Nexplanon, an implant in the arm that Mm -hmm. um, works in a similar way as the IUD. And then obviously you don't want to give them any sort of estrogen containing birth control pills because obviously that kind of counteracts what their, what their goal is. 
But the first thing I do is I do an exam because it does sometimes a patient can be in testosterone for years and have a totally patent, healthy cisgender-like vagina um, that you can easily place an IUD in versus someone that's only been on testosterone for a year or two and they have total vaginal stenosis and atrophy. So it really depends. Okay. Yeah, no, that's really informative. Do you see um, the cessation of menses in the next planon like the same as you would with like a Mirena? Yes, actually, it does make menses a little less regular. They may have spotting here and there, mm-hmm. um, and it may not be quite as dramatic as the Mirena, but it works in a similar way. So, you know, patients will have lighter, if not um, absent menses. Okay. And then um, going back to the estrogen now, you said that with estrogen-containing oral contraceptives that you wouldn't necessarily recommend those when they're taking testosterone because it might be counterintuitive to their transition, whereas we won't really see, at least I haven't seen in my experience, a lot of halting in like secondary sex characteristics, but... I have mm-hmm. found, and you might be able to support this, that sometimes it is harder to get the cycle to stop. Is that what you mean with the estrogen-containing contraceptives? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because they'll still, like, you know, get the deeper voice and things like that. But, yeah, their cycle will continue most likely. Right. The secondary sex characteristics will kind of maintain, but, the, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. The ovulatory well, function. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just wanted to clarify that. Um, now... Go ahead. Yeah. Now, the other option, and um, there's not a lot of literature out there about this, but it's the option of vaginal estrogen cream in uh, trans men, um, especially the ones that are still wishing to maintain penetrative intercourse ability, mm-hmm. um, the ability to have sex, you know, with a penis or a dildo. Now, the the benefit with vaginal estrogen is that it has a very low systemic absorption, which means mm-hmm. only a very small amount of the estrogen gets into the blood system. Mm-hmm. And so it works locally in the vagina, but also the bladder as well mm-hmm. to keep that tissue healthy. So once again, there's not a lot of data on that, but you know, anecdotally, I have patients that have been on it, and I'm sure you have as well, mm-hmm. who um, you know, use something like that, especially when they want to maintain a patent vagina for sexual activity or you know, for their, you know, self-appearance. Yeah. I'm so glad you actually mentioned that because you're right. There's not a lot of literature, especially in trans like men, but I anecdotally, I have used it a fair amount and I've also used it too for, like you said, painful intercourse, uh, maintain the patency, but I've found it also helps reduce recurrent BV infections, I think from the pH changes. So mm-hmm. yeah, I actually use it a lot. Um, well, I wouldn't say a lot, but I definitely offer it up for, for patients under those circumstances. But So I'm glad that you um, are using that, too, and you've noticed the similar effects. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. I think it's a really great option that, you know, depending on the provider, it's not always being offered for trans men. And I think it can kind of get neglected because we sometimes assume that they're not using that organ for penetrative intercourse, which is just honestly not the case a lot of the times. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think that that's I, I think that that's one thing that we as providers could be better about is understanding that just because someone is trans doesn't mean that they don't enjoy sex and they don't you know enjoy a variety of sexual activities right. um, or and that so they have, always kind of yeah. broach that topic with them right or that they even have genital dysphoria because not everybody does yeah yes exactly awesome okay so one of the things I wanted to bring up to you as well was. We had discussed um, kind of briefly, but the Healthy People 2020 had published some initiatives 
as it pertains to the LGBTQ community. So for their goals for creating safe spaces for care and increasing access and utilization of routine health screenings. And actually, when I was reading them, they actually cited that uh, women who identified as lesbian or bisexual were more likely to have chronic illness, but less likely to receive routine gynecological exams. So I don't know what your thoughts Mm -hmm. are on that or what we could be doing as providers to change that number. But what do you think the reason for that is and things that we could be doing to make a difference there? I think there are a lot of reasons that women from that community are hesitant to come in to see not only a gynecologist, but anyone in primary care to address some of those problems. But, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of them are, you know, social, social reasons, you know, concern that, you know, they might be discriminated against, concern that their, their concerns won't be taken seriously, or that there'll be some sort of judgment as far as their lifestyle and, and quote, quote, choices, mm-hmm. <laughs> use them in quotes right. for a reason. But, and then they also just aren't sure where to go. So I think that that really inhibits a lot of not just lesbian and bisexual women, but, you know, trans men and women from seeking the care that they need. Now, as far as medical problems and prevalence of medical conditions, you know, lesbian women um, do have a higher risk for obesity, tobacco use, and alcohol use as well, just based on Mm-hmm. population data. And as a result, you know, they theoretically are at higher risk for things like diabetes, lung cancer, cardiovascular disease. So screening and, and kind of frequent checkups is, are really, really important for um, for this population as a whole. But then also, too, you know, we need to make sure that we're getting, they're getting the right gynecological care um, mm-hmm. and the appropriate screening. We already talked a little bit about pap smears and how those are so important. Mm-hmm. but also regular breast cancer screening, evaluating for signs of ovarian mm-hmm. cancer and uterine cancer. And then, you know, when they come in for their, their well-woman visits, um, making sure that you're screening for cardiovascular disease, high cholesterol, uh, diabetes, and that you're, you know, you're appropriately counseling them on those things. And then the other thing, too, that's really important is when they do come in, ask them about domestic violence because a lot of lesbian and bisexual women are victims of domestic violence, but it's just not the typical ones that you hear about in the news. Um, you know, same-sex partner domestic violence is a thing, and you know sometimes women are hesitant to disclose that, whether they're in a same-sex or different-sex relationship. So um, I always screen patients for that as well. Okay, and so how do you how do you well. normally screen for that? Are you giving them like a questionnaire? Are you personally asking them? So as part of our questionnaire, I've never, honestly, I've never had anyone answer yes just based on mm-hmm. what's on a questionnaire because it's such a personal question. And so I always bring it up with them as well. You know, just asking them if they feel safe at home. Um, do they feel safe with their partners? And mm-hmm. have they ever been forced to engage in any sort of sexual activity that they didn't feel comfortable with? You know, three simple questions. I find that, you know, talking about those three different things you know, if there's something there, it'll get brought up. Um, and then making sure I'm doing that, you know, at the, at, you know, when I first see them while they're dressed, they're not sitting on the table. It's not the middle of the exam. Mm-hmm. It's just a very kind of casual discussion we're having where they don't feel like they're in a compromised position. Mm-hmm. So. 
Yeah, I think that's actually what you just said there is really important because having obviously my own personal experiences with gynecologists, I've had several have two different styles and the one that I currently see now actually will talk to you in their office before going in and doing the exam. And I think that does make a patient mm-hmm. feel a lot more comfortable to have a conversation and divulge information when you're not sitting half naked on a table in mm-hmm. front of them feeling really vulnerable. So I think that's really an awesome mm-hmm. that you do that for your patients. everyone i have a quick favor to ask if you wouldn't mind taking a moment and just clicking the subscribe button on whichever platform you use to listen to my show that would be wonderful not only does it allow you to get notified every time i publish an episode but it also helps with my ratings and reviews which what that means in podcast world is that i'm able to climb up in the rating scale and reach other listeners the whole reason why i started this show is to access people who needed the information so please just go ahead and click subscribe then we can all be happy and continue to listen to this good quality free information thank you so much so you also mentioned though that you know trying to get women in for their health screenings and things like that obviously like you said that's really important for transgender women too your office and you actually did a lot of extra training in transgender women and their pelvic floor dysfunction and especially post-surgical pelvic floor issues. So what type of things can you Mm -hmm. do for those patients as far as uh, what kind of regular health screenings they may or may not need and what kind of issues you see sometimes pop up after surgery? Yeah, well, so I've kind of made this subspecialty Mm -hmm. in my practice because I've always been interested in trans health care. And as I was going through my training, I found that a lot of trans women, you know, they'll have their gender-confirming genital surgery, and then you don't really hear anything afterwards about what happens to them. Right. And when I did a little deeper diving, I, you know, I realized that pelvic floor dysfunction is really prevalent um, in this group of women um, mm-hmm. after surgery. I mean, it's not surprising. You're doing, um, you know, one, maybe two, maybe three major surgeries Mm-hmm. to, um, you know, the, the perineum and the, the genital tract, and including the bladder and sometimes the rectum. And, you know, of course, they're going to have changes in their bladder function and their vaginal function. Um, and I think that urogynecologists are in a special position where they're very familiar with the anatomy and the function of all these organs, and they can provide some of that aftercare and monitoring for some of these things. And, you know, by, by conditions, I'm talking about things like overactive bladder. I mean, up to 33% of transgender women after surgery will have urgency, frequency, waking up at night to go to the bathroom, mm-hmm. um, urinary incontinence, you know, uh, uh, urine spraying is um, up for the 60% of women will have that. And then, you know, vaginal function, when they have the, when the neovagina is created, you know, the, the biggest thing that's stressed with is frequent dilation and starting sexual intercourse. And sometimes even with that, women can develop, you know, strictures in the vagina, stenosis. They can have trouble with their dilations. They can get infections. And so, you know, I, I have, I'm trying to position myself as that provider here in Atlanta that they can go to to address some of those things because a lot of times their surgeons who perform these surgeries are in other states. Um, yeah, and so time. for things that need... Yeah, yeah. For things that need kind of closer monitoring and, and frequent visits, 
it's hard to fly up to see their, their surgeon every time. And so, you know, it depends on what they come in presenting with, but um, I can do, you know, things for such as, you know, small vaginal revisions, releasing some strictures, treating any abrasions. For the bladder, you know, if they have overactive bladder, um, there are a variety of, you know, medications and procedures we can do to help relieve that, including, you know, if they have a urethral stricture, relieving that. If they have urinary incontinence, um, doing things to help them control their urine stream. Um, and then a lot of just general pelvic floor work, because I've also found that a lot of women after surgery have what we call high-tone pelvic floor, which basically means the musculature and all the support system that's keeping everything in place is just really inflamed and irritated. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's probably due to a lot of things, not just surgery, but just, you know, a life of living in a body that they felt was foreign to them. And so now that they have the genitalia that they want and that they that they need to have, they need to kind of, you know, reorient how their pelvic floor works. And so I do a lot of work with them as far as releasing some of that tension and letting them kind of learn how their body is going to be working from now on. So it, it really depends on what they come in with, but, you know, it's, it's, it runs the gamut as far as what can happen after surgery. Um, yeah. But the, the great thing is that even after, you know, even with some of these problems down the road, I mean, satisfaction after surgery is incredibly high. And I've never had a patient come in saying, I wish I didn't have this done. You know, they always are happy with it. And, you know, my job is to just make their quality of life as optimal as as it can be and make them love their new body. Well, we're so excited to have you in Atlanta. I cannot tell you over the last uh, four and a half years that I've been serving this population, how many times I would have loved to have you in my back pocket for certain issues that have come up for my patients postoperatively. Because like you said, a lot of these patients get surgery done in Arizona, Chicago, New York, San Francisco. It's nowhere usually very close by. So not only is it out of state, it's usually expensive areas to fly to and it's cumbersome. You know, So to have somebody here that can help troubleshoot a lot of those things is going to be amazing. So we're really mm-hmm. excited about that. You mentioned infection. I was curious about this because I do have several uh, women who have undergone surgery. And troubleshooting kind of vaginal infections in that group, you know, obviously prior to meeting you, have had to kind of self-navigate some of that. And we often do swabs, but everybody has different kind of opinions on that. And I have met with a different surgeon who does actually the, uh, the vaginoplasties who recommends doing like mm-hmm. just a regular culture and treating based on that, but also said that depending on the type of tissue that they can get traditional bacterial vaginosis. So kind of what is your experience with that? Like, what do you kind of see as more the common pathogens? Or is it just really so varied? It really varies, you know, especially for women that have, you know, the penile inversion vaginoplasty. I, you know, I think that there's a lot of variability. Obviously, if it's like a colonic vaginoplasty, mm-hmm. then it's probably going to be an E. coli sort of thing. But um, for penile inversion, it really does vary in I started placing women on um, vaginal lactobacillus suppositories hmm. to, um, with the hopes that that kind of introduces the normal vaginal flora that you want um, into the space and tries to outcompete some of that bad bacteria. Once again, you know, like with everything in, involving trans healthcare, unfortunately, there's just not a lot of literature. Right. Um, and so, like you said, it is kind of provider dependent. Everyone has their own formulations and ideas. Some providers will just have patients use trimestine creams mm-hmm. with the hopes that that will do it. But, it, yeah, it really does depend. Now, you know, as far as treating patients, 
you know, I would reserve um, any sort of treatment um, unless, you know, they're really bothered by the discharge and it is an impressive amount of discharge. The, the problem with just kind of treating for every time you have a positive culture is that you're going to build resistance to things and then you're going to get stuck where you're going to have a really bad infection. So, you know, I try and, you know, I try and talk to patients and say, you know, if you're really bothered by this discharge, we can see what it is. And if it's, you know, if it grows out something significant, we can treat it. Otherwise, let's just leave it be and try some lactobacillus. The other question I had for you when you were talking about overactive bladder postoperatively, how do you kind of decipher between, I mean, obviously you're very knowledgeable on the subject, but just for myself and listeners, decipher between that and prostatitis? Uh, Because, you know, I've encountered both with patients and sometimes it can be difficult. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it it certainly can be. And I think the, the first thing when I have a patient who comes in with, you know, saying that they're going to the bathroom very frequently and they have any urgency to go or they're having trouble emptying their bladder even. You know, if they've had surgery, you know, I like to do a cystoscopy first just to take a look. And, you know, if you see like a, you know, um, a, a bulge kind of where the prostatic urethra is, then that's a sign. But also too, just by passage of the scope, you know, if it is an inflamed prostate, so they'll feel it. Um, but you also want to look for any urethral strictures um, or any signs of infections or stones or anything like that. And then just a, you know, a good exam. Since you have the, the vagina there, you can do um, you know, a transvaginal exam and, and really feel the bladder base and the prostate um, and see if anything is painful for them. But you know, I tend to just, my default treatment um, is to you know, try overactive bladder medications first mm-hmm. and then kind of see from there. But prostatitis, they tend to have more pain-related symptoms, whereas overactive bladder, they don't tend to have a lot of pain. It's more urgency, frequency, that kind of thing. Awesome. Well, cool. Thank you for that. That was like really informative and helpful. And I think, you know, having you as a resource in the community is just going to be amazing. So just for listeners, is there a best way to contact you or do you have a social platform or any questions that might be like, you know, stimulated from listening to this? Where would you like the patients to seek you out? Um, they can always make an appointment to come in to see me. Um, I love just having appointments where we just chat. They shouldn't feel like they're going to be, you know, walking in and needing an exam. If they just want to talk about things, talk about questions they might have, I'd be happy to talk to them. They can also send me an email. My email is shuber at gyngeorgia.com. Georgia is all written out. And I am not very social media savvy, so there's really no good place to find me on there. But I'd be happy to see them in person. Yeah, that's great. No, I think that works for a lot of people. Well, awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. And uh, we'll stay in contact. I really appreciate having that you That sounds on. great. Thank you, Erin. Yeah, it's no problem. So once again, thanks for tuning in. And I really hope you enjoyed talking with Dr. Sally Huber as much as I did. She's a wealth of information. And she's such a wonderful resource to have here in the community. I'm really happy to have her. So if you have any questions after our podcast episode today, please feel free to reach out. You can make an appointment with her through her website at Advanced Gynecology, or you can email her directly at shuber at gyngeorgia.com. That's shuber at gyngeorgia.com. All those resources will also be posted in the podcast profile. 
if you have any questions for me, again, feel free to email me at Aaron at exclusivelyinclusivepodcast.com. And in the meantime, thanks for tuning in. Stay fierce and live your truth.